Hi, I'm Faisal Terry. Welcome to the first ever Calibre podcast as presented by Watches of Switzerland. Thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to share our experiences and passion for horology and all things that make us tick. So what can you expect? We'd like to bring you interesting conversations on watches, the industry, brands, themes, trends, and we'd really love your feedback through our social media channels. So please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Our first podcast is an introduction to the Swiss watch industry and how it all began. So welcome to the first uh, in a series of podcasts uh, from Watches of Switzerland, uh, explaining the, uh, the wonderful world of horology. Um, and here we are today with Brian Duffy, who's the CEO of the Watches of Switzerland group. Hello, Brian. Hi, Mark. So I, I guess one of the main questions really that... Um, often comes up when uh, when people think about watches is is why switzerland why switzerland so important to watches uh, i think it is the first question and it's uh it's not i think obvious to everybody why uh why switzerland would dominate as they do the world of swiss watches uh, a bit more obvious when you think of cheese and chocolate but uh, maybe not so obvious when you think of watches it is an interesting answer i think it goes uh goes way back to the reformation and one of the leaders of the reformation john calvin uh, who set up uh, himself in Geneva. Geneva then was a city-state, wasn't part of Switzerland, uh, was a theocracy, and uh, that the, the, the church had a huge influence in how people led their life, and the church was led then by Jean Calvin. Uh, he was very much against materialism, ostentatious, frivolity, uh, all that good stuff that, uh, that we all love, and as part of his... Uh, uh, decrees he determined uh, uh, or decreed uh, the banning of the wearing of jewellery. And jewellery back then was a thriving industry, a lot of goldsmiths, a lot of silversmiths, um, who effectively from one day to the other, were, uh, 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 their market was taken from them. So what they decided to do uh, was concentrate on the making of, uh, of watches and clocks John Calvin was okay with that because they were, you know, functional products. Uh, this all happened in the 16th century, uh, and in 1601, the world's first ever watchmakers guild uh, was formed in Geneva. Incredible! Wow. Um, so I guess um, so. Uh, Geneva was the intimately uh, associated with with watchmaking, but then some of the manufacturers moved out, or some of the, the watch houses moved out. Well, the, the, what happened was, um, you know, if we can uh, roll forward in, in time, then uh, there was a huge demand for a naturally increasing demand for people knowing the time. People were moving between towns, commerce was developing, the Industrial Revolution had happened, um, and there was a big demand for watches. And the guild that had been set up in Geneva uh, was pretty restrictive in that you had one watchmaker, one apprentice, so there was a natural... Uh, restriction to the, the growth and the growth in, from that watchmakers guild couldn't cope with the demand that was happening around the world. Um, so then a, a very innovative uh, uh, individual, I think, I don't think he was alone, but the one that's given credit for um, uh, starting uh, watchmaking outside of Geneva was a guy called Daniel Jean Richard. Um, and he started manufacturing uh, in Neuchâtel, which remains a bit, very big and important uh, centre for uh, watchmaking today. And he not only changed it geographically, he really changed the whole way watches were being uh, made because he created a, um, a cottage industry. Um, he, what he did is organise a lot of subcontractors, effectively, people making uh, individual components. 
um, and they would all, uh, the whole system was called etablissage, and uh, the guy that ran it was the etablisseur, <laughs> and he had all of these uh, subcontractors doing various components and uh, pieces and parts that all came together to a with a watchmaker. Uh, and he put together the watch, which was called Finissage. Hope you're noting all this, Mark. I so uh, there's going to be a test at the <laughs> test at the end of it. Um, and inevitably, in, uh, in, in the structure of the Etablissage, there was a commercial wing of it as well, who would then take the watches and uh, go sell them around the world. Um, so we, we've we've really uh, ran forward a, a lot in time from 1601 we're now through to the sort of a, a second part of the 19th century. But even then, 1870, I saw a statistic that said that um, of the all of the production of watches in Switzerland at that time, 50% of the production was effectively done in the home wow. of the of the worker. The rest of it was done in small workshops with uh, less than 10 people. So. We think the industry today is huge and, mm -hmm. and uh, very technically advanced, as it clearly is. Back then, it really was a cottage industry. So why, why the Jura? Why the Jura uh, Mountains? Why, why was it uh, established there? Well, again, I, I'd, I'd say that it wasn't part of Switzerland then. So you, these were different uh, cities and, and different uh, cantons, as they're, uh, as they're known in Switzerland. Um, but of a religious significance here too, because um, both Neuchâtel uh, and uh, then, which is at the beginning of the Jura Mountains, and throughout the mountains, there was a lot of Huguenot families and Calvinist families again uh, that had uh, uh, set themselves up. Uh, in the mountains themselves, they were they were generally farmers. They were uh, they were dairy farmers. Um, uh, but Calvinist, Huguenot, very strong work ethic, uh, bilingual inevitably, German and, uh, and French and uh, often Latin, uh, very tight-knit communities, uh, effectively very often interlinked uh, families. Um, they were also generally blacksmiths uh, because they were working you know, with, uh, uh, with their animals and so on, working on the farm, so they had a good working knowledge of, of metal pieces and parts. So he found a very willing and, uh, and able workforce in the Jura Mountains. And particularly for the obvious period of the year, the winter time, where they had very little to do because they were snowbound in the mountains. Um, and thanks to the success of all of this, I think another interesting stat is that um, at the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century, 1800, watches were getting made in different uh, countries throughout Europe, including here in England. Uh, and at the start of uh, uh, of the 19th century, 1800, England was making 200,000 watches. Switzerland was making 200,000 watches. Thanks to the development of this manufacturing, this cottage industry that I've said in the, the Jura Mountains, you roll forward 50 years, England still making 200,000 watches, but Switzerland by then is making 2.2 million. Wow. So the real domination of the industry, of the world's uh, industry of uh, watchmaking, effectively happened in that second part of the uh, uh, of the 19th century. And um, actually the, the numbers are that by 1870, 70% um, of world's watches were then uh, getting made in Switzerland. In towns that I think we otherwise would never have heard of, um, including somewhere like uh, Neuchâtel, but towns like locally, uh, Le Sontier, Saint-Emier, Bienbiel, places that we know really well because they're big centers of uh, of these major brands, um, they would be small farming towns if, if, if this whole uh, industry hadn't uh, developed as it's done. Mm -hmm. Incredible. 
So um, I guess the next step really was uh, sort of formalising uh, the education and training of the workforce. Yes, yes and uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I know that if people are interested in you know understanding how a, a country like Switzerland, a relatively small country, can can really uh, develop and dominate an industry, this is, watchmaking is a really good study to do. Um, although these brands even today compete with each other, they still operate in a very coordinated way in, on, on behalf of, uh, of the industry overall. And so it was back then, there clearly was a need f uh, to, to uh, have a standardisation, uh, a quality and a you know, consistency of, uh, of uh, watchmaker skills. So watchmaking schools started to, to develop the first in Geneva, appropriately 1824. Then Saint-Timier, Le Local, Neuchâtel, Bien, Fleurier, all these uh, uh, great centres that we've talked about. Uh, there then was the first uh, observatory uh, put in place so for the standardisation of time and, and also for the certification and qualification of products. And that was in Neuchâtel as well in 1858. And interestingly, in, in future podcasts, we're going to talk a lot about Rolex. And uh, Rolex... Uh, uh, famously got the first certified chronometer, actually, in the, in Neuchâtel in, the, in 1910. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So they had like an uninterrupted sort of dominance of the watch market. Has anything ever um, happened that's um, upset that dominance or, or tried to challenge it at least? There's, uh, there's been a couple of challenges. One, I guess we'd say successful challenge of what they were doing was the quartz crisis that happened reasonably recently when quartz technology was uh, invented, actually originally invented in Switzerland, uh, but, but really taken on by the, by the Japanese, and that's, back, that's 1970s and 80s that we're talking about. The Swiss referred to the period as the, as the quartz crisis, and the, it really was a crisis for the, for the industry. It contracted 60%, so the, uh, the industry went down to um, only 40% of what it was. People put out of work, a lot of enterprises uh, cl closing down. Uh, but we'll talk about how they quickly recovered uh, from that in, the, in, in later podcasts as well. Um, another challenge happened to them in the later part of the, of the 19th century and actually came from America. Uh, America then, uh, as it is today, I think, you know, a, a major um, innovator, if you like, in you know, mass production and uh, methods of uh, manufacturing. And they started making watches. It was a great export market for the Swiss uh, up till then. Uh, but some local entrepreneurs then started to, to develop watchmaking and really came up with a much more efficient way of, uh, of manufacturing standardized parts, production lines, uh, and so on. Two famous companies in, in the history were the Waltham uh, Watch Company in, in Massachusetts and the Elgin uh, Watch Company, who I think were in uh, Illinois, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they became very successful, uh, and the Swiss export market into America started to dwindle. Um, and the, the Swiss sent delegations over to, to find out what was going on, and uh, they, they went to a famous exhibition that happened in Philadelphia in 1876. Uh, they saw the watches that were being produced. They couldn't believe the price points that uh, they were being sold at, and um, they headed back to Switzerland with their news. They actually visited quite a few of the factories, but they headed back and said, we've got to do something about our production because we're, uh, we're getting left behind. It was hugely contentious in the industry uh, because, you know, correctly, the industry, a lot of watchmaking um, companies didn't want to take on the, all of the American methods, uh, felt that they'd be, uh, they'd be compromising quality and so on. 
And um, when you read the history again, they, they say the whole Swiss emphasis was always on product quality, product innovation, mm. rather than process development. Um, so they didn't want to take on exactly what the American companies were doing, but they did learn some things from it, and they did really develop uh, and, to some degree, industrialise some of the manufacturing. They made workshops got bigger, uh, generally, uh, overall, and they did standardise a lot of parts, which made a lot of sense because the same part can now be used in, in, uh, in many more watches. So it really did lead them to start producing more um, cost-effective uh, watches uh, overall. And uh, they saw off the Americans. So if we roll forward to, to 1900, uh, the Swiss again have, uh, uh, have regained their complete domination and 90% of the world market at that point was actually being produced in Switzerland. Mm. Um, one other American company that uh, I forgot to mention, the Waterbury Watch Company, uh, was in Connecticut. And I used to live in Connecticut, actually, okay. so uh, uh, um, it's familiar to me. But that company, um, relatively small back in the 19th century, but if you roll it forward, that became the Timex uh, Corporation, who did, who did not complain, who did c claim during their heyday to be the biggest manufacturer of uh, watches. Um, but the American manufacturing of watches really were really seen off by the, uh, the quartz crisis when it happened. Uh, the Swiss hugely recovered, as we know, but we will talk about that later. So, you know, Mark, you're, uh, Mark didn't uh, completely introduce himself as to what he does, but he is uh, our uh, in-house uh, expert on watches. He's been uh, the, the head of all of our buying of watches here at Watcher of Switzerland. Uh, for a long time, he's forgotten more about watches than, uh, than I know, a real uh, expert and lover of watches. So we're going to just talk about a couple of the brands that have been part of that history that we've, uh, that we've just talked through. And um, uh, when you think of horological developments, uh, innovations, complications, as the Swiss uh, call them, uh, the brand that we would all think of immediately is Patek Philippe. And um, just carrying on with my... Um, history teacher role, you know, for the moment. Just the history of Patek, it's been around since uh, mid-19th century, 1839. Uh, started with actually two Polish immigrants, uh, Zapek and, and Patek. Uh, Zapek, I'm sure much to his uh, descendants' grave disappointment, um, yeah. bailed out uh, reasonably early on, and the partnership was then changed with a, a Jean-Adrien Philippe, mm -hmm. Frenchman, uh, joining, and, and so we have uh, Patek Philippe. Um, Patek really known for uh, innovations and, uh, uh, and patents uh, more than anyone else. Um, back in the 19th century, uh, their big innovation, they were the first with the keyless uh, winding. So the first to actually uh, move to a crown on the, on the winding rather than, a, rather than having to have a key. We think one of those first watches was actually given to Queen Victoria. If it wasn't mm -hmm. the first, then... I may be wrong in this, but I actually think that watch is in uh, the museum that, uh, that they have in uh, Geneva. I think so. I'm pretty sure that it is. Um, the, their history also claims that the first wristwatch in 1868, the first perpetual calendar in 1889, first split-second chronograph, one that I know it's very close to your heart, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, first wristwatch, perpetual calendar. Um, and generally, the company would associate with the most complications, and if we roll it real forward to recent times, celebrating their 150th uh, anniversary with uh, the Calibre 89, mm -hmm. uh, with 33 uh, complications, and then in the 2014, 175th with the, yeah. the Grandmaster chime. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, a lot ha has happened in that history to create this uh, this wonderful brand. So, so talking about the the Patek collection, they they do a lot of of, uh, of of different products, a lot of complications. But what do you think of when you're you're thinking of the Patek collection? Um, I think. Um uh, there's a simplicity as well as the complications. You think about the Calatrava, um, came out in 1932 with the, with the, um, uh, the Model 96, um, and it was a very simple, uh, very simple watch, uh, minimalist design, a sub subsidiary seconds dial, uh, round case, quite small, um, and um, just elegant hands slim buttons on the dials to mark the hours. And I think you can think of, 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 of Patek Philippe from that perspective. Uh, the Calatrava is one of their um, key collections. It comes from the Calatrava Cross, which I think knights uh, used to use as, a, as their banner when they were, when they were fighting in the, in the 11th century. Um, so there's that whole history there with the, with the Calatrava. I think in 32, I think that's when the Sterns took over the over the over the manufactory, um, and that's probably one of their first watches. So I think Calatrava is is iconic and key, um, and the perpetual calendars you mentioned as well. Um, they're they're great watches. Um, I suppose um, arguably, Patek uh, are the great innovators of the uh, of the of the perpetual calendar, um, and I think in was it 1941. Uh, they brought out the, the 1526 model, which was, I guess, the first um, seriously produced perpetual calendar um, in series. And, and, and the look of the um, uh, perpetual calendars today flows from that original model. I mean, they're, they're, they're iconic pieces, they're really terrific. I happen to be fortunately wearing a Calatrava today, and it is one of my prized mm -hmm. possessions. Beautifully elegant. Yep. My wife bought me this mm -hmm. for a, a special birthday, actually, before I was with uh, Watches of Switzerland. Uh, but again, the the enamel dial, mm -hmm. the, the simplicity, the beautiful, prominent, you know, black uh, uh, hour markers mm -hmm. on the yep. Roman marking. So something that's all, always very, although it's simple and very elegant, it still remains very very eye catching. Uh, it's a 5119, isn't it? I think with a hobnail bezel, uh, which again is, uh, is is iconic for Patek, um, and I think it's about I think it's about 36 mil, which these days sounds small, but but it, you know it looks right. It's it's understated. It's elegant. Yes, I can't say that it looks this good on everybody, but uh, <laughs> but here we are. Yeah, that's true. And you know, and, and other things with with uh, with Patek, what what was a you know a big change in a. Um, you know, I'm sure at the time unexpected moving into to steel uh, sports watches with mm -hmm. what is probably one of the most desirable watches today, the Nautilus. Indeed, yeah, yeah. 1976, I think it came out. Um, yeah, it, it's it's it is one of the hardest watches to get um, in the world. Um, it's it, it again, it's another icon. It's kind of like a um, the original had a sort of a hinged case. It was almost like a porthole. Um, but it, it's it's a gentleman's sports watch, I guess you could describe it as. Um, wonderful, wonderful watch. It, it, it really is stunning, and, uh, and um, we do, we've closed our waiting lists on the uh, on Nautilus watches. And I, and I believe that if if you were um, to ask for how long it would take, I, I have heard it quoted that uh, it's an eight-year waiting list, which seems a long time. And I guess if you're 25, you could plan ahead. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah. uh, but at my age, I'm not going to wait eight years for yeah. uh, for a watch. I think I'll buy I think I'll buy something else. But hugely a desirable mm -hmm. watch, yeah. very 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 uh, iconic. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know another very famous one. Talking about complications, of course, the Henry Graves 
com complications. And I, when I think of the Henry Graves, it was, I think, 24 complications. Something I like think. that, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and eventually sold at uh, an auction for 24 million. So yeah. it's a million a complication if that's, you want to uh, right. yeah, yeah. simplify the overall, uh, overall yeah. pricing mechanism. Yeah. Astronomical. Another hugely uh, um, uh, desirable uh, brand out there today, uh, and, and again, another one that goes, uh, goes back to that history, 1875, we have uh, Audemars uh, Piguet. Um, founded in the Valley de Joux in Le Brassis, which I, I happen to have uh, visited. Um, something I find really kind of fascinating when I look back at a lot of the, the history of, of these great watch companies is that um, a lot of the great innovators the companies were talking about, including Audemars and P Piguet, uh, two, two young men that got together, two watchmakers, and, and formed this great, uh, this great business. They were in their early 20s. Uh, Hans Wilsdorf, when he came mm -hmm. to London, uh, was 22 when, yeah. he, when he founded yeah. Rolex. I don't know what's happened to the human race since then. Um, you even think, is it Louis Brandt, I think, was the uh, um, one of the, the main family members behind the development of, uh, of Omega. Omega. Yeah, for sure. And uh, he was 24, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. No disrespect to my kids, but they weren't doing this kind of thing in their early 20s overall. But, uh, you know, I think what it tells us is that back then, yeah, Switzerland was the Silicon Valley in yeah, many ways. I think it probably is. That's a good parallel, actually. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. you had all these really mm -hmm. young, ambitious, mm -hmm. bright guys yeah. uh, back there, and, and, and what they did and what they created was uh, is amazing. And thank goodness they did, or we wouldn't be here yeah, true uh, enough. Did, doing the job that we're doing. <laughs> true enough. Um, but uh, Audemars, you're really famous for, uh, for quality and for imitation. Uh, uh, innovation uh, for really complex movements in terms of their history. Um, very famous today because of the, the success of the, the Royal Oak mm -hmm. and uh, everything that's happened since. But but in their history, they, they claim for, you know first minute repeater and yeah. uh, they really were all about innovations mm -hmm. and uh, uh, in movements. Uh, but uh, they changed the industry with the Royal Oak uh, when it came along. They they, they did really. Um, I mean, what a time to be alive! I suppose was it 1973 when the when the Royal Oak came out, and it was, it was, um, it was ten times dearer than a than a, than a Submariner at the time. Uh, so 3,300 Swiss francs, um, a huge amount of money for a steel watch, um, dearer than a, a Patek 18 carat at the time as well. So, people must have looked at it and thought, what is this? You know, um, so quite an incredible thing, um, and it was. Uh, it was 39 mil case, seven millimeters uh, thin, which is pretty thin, uh, but 39 mil case, and they called it the jumbo because everybody thought it was enormous at 39 mil. Well, 39 mil really sort of standard or, or edging on the on the smaller side today. So yeah, it must have been uh, must have been quite a quite a, a Basel world to be at when you when you saw that. Sure, and, and like you say, the, the 70s, which uh, which I remember well. People always say the 60s. If you remember them, you really weren't there, but. Uh, but the time we're talking about there, you had, you had the Beatles and mm. and the Stones and yeah. The, yeah. and the Beach Boys. You had people mm -hmm. walking in the moon yeah. with their Omega watches yeah, yeah. As, it, as it happened. Mm -hmm. And then you had the Royal Oak. Yeah. You know, what, what more did you want in life? Yeah. Yeah. True enough. And uh, then, uh, like, like you say, it, uh, it was considered really big, 39. I think they're mainly 44 millimetre now, the, the Royal Oaks. But, yeah, the offshore certainly would get out there, yeah. yeah. Is it, I thought the offshore was bigger. Maybe I'm mistaken. I thought the offshore was bigger. But is it uh, the standard Royal Oak now? Is I stand corrected. It's they do still 40. do a, they do still do a thirty nine, but there's a, I think there's a forty forty one. I think it's forty one mil forty one. Forty one yeah. is a, is a standard Royal Oak, mm. and then the offshores 
Yeah, well, they're 44s and yeah. that's yeah, huge. Yep. But a uh, wonderful brand, uh, as I said, founded in 1875 in, uh, in Labrasis and, um, you know, uh, similar to, uh, to Pet Protect today and for many of the Rolex models, very difficult to get product, highly, uh, highly desired uh, uh, throughout the world. And just some other brands that we sell here at Watchstill Switzerland that have played a big part in the, uh, in the history that we've talked about. Blancpain, uh, part of this watch group uh, today, formed in uh, 1735 in Villeray. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on Blancpain? Um, yeah, one of, well, again, a legendary, a legendary uh, watch manufacturer. And I, I, obviously, that it's one of those that suffered really with the uh, with the quartz crisis that you mentioned, and then resurrected. And I think um, that's uh, Jean Claude Beaver's uh, doing that kind of resurrected the brand um, and the slogan. There's never been a, a quartz watch uh, made by Blancpain. I'm stumbling over the exact phrasing, and that, uh, but there never will be. I think that's quite quite a quite a statement considering. Uh, what the state of the industry was at the time when when Mr. Beaver took the brand on. So there hasn't been a quartz watch particularly from from Blancpain. They're all about authentic automatics um, and some great pieces. The sort of um, the, the full calendar watches are, are amazing. Really really good value as well. And the divers watches. I know we do very well with their, their fifty fathoms. Yeah, uh, that, I think that came out in fifty three. Um, um, and it was, I think they collaborated with, uh, with I think the French Navy and Jacques Cousteau on the design of it. Um, and it had got like a double sealed crown and a rotating bezel. So again, it was, uh, it would have looked quite, um, quite sort of uh, out there really in 1953. I mean, Jacques Cousteau is another one we could add to that list of famous memories of, uh, yeah. of the 70s. Indeed. Jane yeah. Burke and Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> yes. Uh, Steve McQueen. Paul, yeah. you, know, you mean a lot of whom had yeah, an yeah. influence ultimately yeah, in, the, did. Uh, Absolutely. in the world of watches <laughs> that were really becoming, uh, I think, you know, very famous during that period. Um, another brand uh, goes right back to 1755 in, the, in Geneva was the Vacheron. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, a terrific uh, Geneva brand. Um, and I mean, they're responsible for quite a few innovations, um, including I think the Pantograph was a machine they made that would would help uh, reproduce parts. So that was sort of in their in their history. But I think the thing um, I like about Vacheron particularly is they um, they they make round watches, but they make lots of different shaped watches. I think they tried to get away from round watches, uh, so they do uh, barrel-shaped watches or tonneau-shaped watches. Um, and they do square ones, or scround as we might call them, sort of square cases with round corners like, like the Toledo. Um, and then there's, there's the iconic 1921 American, which is kind of a, a square watch, but the, the dial's set at 45 degrees. It's supposed to be for when you're, when you're driving. It was built for the American market, so you don't have to tilt your wrist too much when you're looking at the time. Um, and then there's a, a watch called the Aronde, which is um, uh, sort of a, a rectangular shape. Um, and then there's the asymmetrical uh, 1972, which does look like it has come out of the 70s. It's, um, you know, it's uh, an asymmetrical rectangular shaped uh, case, quite iconic for them. And, uh, you know, I think all these, the reason that these brands have all survived and succeeded through today is uh, they have all been responsible for innovation. They've all stuck by uh, their principles and so yep. on. Um, we, we are not talking about Rolex specifically because we are going to talk about the 20th century and the development of the luxury wristwatch market mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and later a podcast. And at that point, we will talk about much more about Rolex and Omega and Cartier mm -hmm. 
um, whose history really began at the start of the 20th century. Yeah, and uh, not surprisingly, it's the three biggest mm. uh, uh, watch luxury watch brands in the in the world today, with Rolex being the uh, being the dominant number one. Mm -hmm. um, another brand I, I do think about um, when you're looking back into this history and, and uh, influences is, uh, is Briggy. Mm. And um, I think of the numerals, something as simple yes. as uh, yeah. Yeah. as yeah. Uh, the Arabic numerals, That's, but they're in yeah. a very distinctive style. They are indeed, yeah. Um, and um, again, sort of a great historical watch. Um, arguably invented the tourbillon um, and... Um, you know, the uh, incredibly shaped Queen of Naples watch for for Napoleon's, um, I think Napoleon's um, sister-in-law, I think it was. Um, so they, they, they've got great iconic pieces too, as well as sort of classic things. But, you know, the tourbillon uh, in its time was, was an amazing innovation to miniaturise something that previously had been used in, in pocket watches. So he was a clever guy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it was, it was all about the pursuit of accuracy. Yeah. Uh, which remains today a pursuit. You know, we mm -hmm. now have automatic mechanical watches yep. now that are accurate to plus or minus mm -hmm. uh, two seconds yep. in the case of a, yep. in the case of Rolex. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, back then, uh, he was coming up with something to offset the effect of uh, of gravity. Correct. Um, which was, you would have thought, a fairly um, small issue mm -hmm. uh, at at the time. But nevertheless, it's something that he turned his mind to, and that became the tourbillon. Yeah. Yep. And uh, to be on uh, most brands, you would see on the on the front of the case, uh, whether technically or not, that's mm -hmm. uh, that's the best thing. It still allows the wearer to let the world know that they have a Turbion. Mm -hmm. But again, talking about the Patek and the, the discretion and elegance of uh, of Patek, they don't show on the dial. Yeah, you would only see it in the back of the watch. It would be your wee secret. That's true. Yeah, I think Panerai are a bit like that as well. They're quite uh, modest about their Turbions, but yeah, it's it's a nice discreet thing. Yeah. Yes. But with uh, with Patek, of course, you, you can tell your offspring about it because you're, you don't really own the Patek; you're merely looking after it for them. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a, it's a it's a great slogan. Yeah, it really is. And um, the one that I think you know really uh, really tells everybody what this this industry is uh, all about. Yeah, these are mechanical watches that we can all understand how they work. Mm -hmm. Can't quite understand the the skill involved and people no. putting them together, but but we get it that there's mm -hmm. a spring being wound and it's yeah. then been unwound and it's been controlled mm -hmm. by a little escapement lever mm -hmm. and, uh, and so on. But amazingly, it's the watch is going to work yeah. 24 hours a day, 365 days yep. a year mm -hmm. for all of your life. Yes, and your descendant, it mm -hmm. will work forever. Yeah, yeah. and it's uh, mm -hmm. and it's mechanical. Really is. Astonishing value when you think about it that way, and it's um, it's such a huge industry today. One of the best parts of the the world of uh, of luxury, and uh, I often wonder what uh, Jean Calvin uh, when, when he when he decided that ostentatious frivolity, indulgement, and so on were, were not godlike. What he would uh, what he would think if he walked into one of our stores today? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, he may not have been too happy. But if he is looking down on mm -hmm. us, Mr. Calvin, yeah. merci beaucoup. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. We've got a, a couple of questions uh, uh, sent in uh, uh, by uh, interested uh, folks out there. The, the first question that uh, we were asked is to give advice on somebody buying their, their first uh, Swiss watch. Um, I guess it depends really. Um, 
if you want an, an everyday watch or if you're more sportingly inclined or you want you're looking for something that's sort of dressy so um so i mean one watch um ideally with a date um so you know what date it is obviously that's quite a useful thing so i, th I think you have to think about what, what 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 you really want um in terms of I guess how it, a, a watch says a lot about a person, so I think you probably need to think about how you want to present yourself. Uh, I mean, if you can if you can afford um, something that's really really quite expensive, up into two, three, four thousand pounds, um, you know, you can get a statement watch from from great manufacturers like you know Rolex um, or or Cartier. Um, and brands like Breitling as well, uh, but again, they're quite different characters in watches. You know, Breitling can be a bit more overtly sporty. Uh, Rolex are instantly recognisable wherever you are, so that's kind of a status thing. But again, they're they're exceptionally well made and um, they've got great substance as well as style. So I, I guess it depends what you're looking for. Um, do you want a strap? Do you want a bracelet? Um, do you want white metal? Do you want steel? Um, all those sort of things. What sort of function do you want? Just the date something that's simple, or do you want a chronograph so you can time things? Dual time, that's a useful function if you're traveling. So you, you, need, to, um, you need to have a good, a good think about it. Um, and go and talk to somebody in one of our stores um, and just explain the sort of things that you do. Uh, and the guys in the, uh, in the stores will, will, will be able to help you with something that's, uh, that's sort of right for you. I think, that, that, can I cover that all? The thing I would add is that there's so much uh, information today available online mm -hmm. so you really yep. can at, at your own leisure mm -hmm. look at the brands and do a bit of research and yep. and uh, see what stories and products and, and look that, uh, that that you find attractive but there's there's no um, real alternative to actually going in the store a getting advice mm -hmm. you know from uh, uh, from from our salespeople or, or other people in industry and then be actually trying to watch on um, a lot of what uh, you think you love about a mm -hmm. watch, you, you can then put it on your wrist and think, well, yep. it's yep. either it's simply gorgeous and I mm -hmm. love it, mm -hmm. uh, which is the response we get from uh, probably most occasions. But on other occasions, mm, hang on, it's maybe not quite me or it doesn't you know, yeah. suit my look or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's there's no substitute for mm -hmm. research, getting advice and the you know trying the product on. True, true, yeah. Another question we were asked is why automatic watches, so watches that don't need winding, that are automatically uh, rewound by, by the motor, why are, why are automatics uh, more expensive? Um, it, I mean, in many cases, they're not. You can get um, an automatic Tissot, for example, so it's a, a good quality Swiss brand for, I don't know, three, three, four hundred pounds, and you can find quartz watches that are, are far more expensive than that. Um, so um, it's kind of horses for courses, really. Mechanical watches, automatic watches, they have a lot more parts uh, than, uh, than a quartz watch. Um, and in many cases, they are handmade. Um, so I suppose the intricacy of the parts would make uh, an automatic watch probably more expensive in many cases than a quartz watch. But you can find a good automatic watch that's um, as expensive as a quartz watch or, or in some cases less expensive. And then we still have, you know, mechanical watches that are that are hand wound and mm -hmm. and uh, uh, really old traditionalists, real old school, would still believe that that's that, that's a relationship that you have to rekindle every morning, as uh, you know you, you wind up your mechanical watch. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I think there's a, there's an organic thing about uh, mechanical watches, automatic watches, where it's um, 
you know, they are dependent on, on, on you doing something to them rather than you just putting it on your wrist and, and off you go. And, and it's, um, it is quite a nice thing, winding a watch. It might sound a bit sad, um, but I, I, I actually enjoy winding my watch, but maybe I need to get out more. I think you told me that you actually, with a, with a perpetual calendar watch, would, would sit up on, on the evening of February 29th, just to uh, see the 29th coming up. Yeah, I would. That is probably a bit of an anorak thing, but um, but I, I would. I would uh, If I had a, a perpetual calendar, I would sit up on a leap year to see everything everything change over. I think that would be a, a fascinating thing. Absolutely. There's nothing sad about that at all, Mark. Don't you, <laughs> don't you be hard on yourself. And... Um, the last question we were asked uh, is, we've been talking about you know, Swiss watches. Are there any brands from anywhere else in the world we'd consider really good uh, quality watch brands? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, you, you covered the development of of, um, of of Swiss watches, but I mean, there was a, 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 a tradition in Germany uh, from from clock making, um, and then particularly uh, watchmaking in uh, in a town called Glashütte. You've got lots of manufacturers there. Uh, Lang and Sona, um, Glashütte Original, Nomos, uh, great, great brands, um, and they, I guess, didn't have the benefit of, um, I don't know, uninterrupted uh, progression uh, of their businesses because um, they found themselves on the wrong side of the Berlin Wall after the Second World War, and uh, and, and didn't, um, you know, I think the, I think the, the Soviets didn't particularly. Um, invest in in watchmaking, so um, a lot of those companies kind of disappeared. Um, like Lang and Zona sort of disappeared completely, and then restarted in what 1999 uh, after the Berlin Wall came came down. So they resurrected themselves. So um, so there's a great tradition in in, in Glashütte. Some amazing watches from brands like Lang and Nomos. Um, and also, uh, you you can't really overlook Japan. I mean, I know they were in part responsible for the the quartz crisis, but they have some um, astonishing watches like Grand Seiko. I mean, the finishing on Grand Seiko watches uh, is second to none and the movements are incredible. So, um, so yeah, uh, Grand Seiko is, is something to look out for too. When, uh, really good kind of different brands. Uh, Langa, I know, mm. was uh, hugely popular. They only make 5,000 watches, yeah. so yeah. they're in that category again mm -hmm. of, of uh, really hard to get. Yeah. Um, and another point of difference which uh, many people really really want to have in the watches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. So that's us, Mark. Yep, okay. Yeah, well, um, thank you. This was our first podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. There will be more. Um, I'd like to thank Brian for his time today um, and um, thank you for listening. We'd love your thoughts on today's subject, so please do subscribe and feedback on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for joining us.